podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? On my way to Paris in mind and spirit, if nothing else, yep. I'm glad you brought that up, because I say to you that Pep Guardiola is a baldy fraud. (laughs) What say thee? (laughs) Uh, I suspect that this is partially rooted in fact rather than an insult as such. Look, Um, let's, let's be honest, Carl. That last night is one of the most spectacular collapses in Champions League history. Unbelievable. Look, I I fully expected that Real Madrid would have a five minutes of Real Madrid or a ten minutes of Real Madrid because that is what a lot of their season has been built on. But the manner of it, the timing of it above everything else just makes it just, just beyond lunacy. You cannot believe that a team with as many players who have won as many things as Man City have allow that to happen and yet I absolutely can and expected it it's not in the way that it happened obviously not with the timings that it happened but that if Real Madrid had that opportunity that Man City would allow them to take it I completely expected this and it's very very difficult to define and describe and you know people just look at you and say weird things if you if you try to come up with explanation for it but there is there is a thing there is a thing in football and certainly in European football where it's hard to explain, like I said, but like an aura, a history, an expectation, mm. an ability to do something that you've done before matters. It really, really it does. does. Real Madrid wouldn't have done that last night if they if they were in Man City's position, for example. Like no. Liverpool wouldn't wouldn't have done to Barcelona what we did if we weren't in Liverpool's position of what had come before, and if Barcelona hadn't been in the position of what had come before against Roma and the like. These things happen repeatedly and until you break that cycle until you can find a way to stop that happening it is not a a complete shock it's not completely unexpected that it happens again and again and again and for Guardiola now it's happened quite a few times and I think that that maybe speaks to possibly a uh, a missing element within his squad is is my personal thought on the matter. Uh, I don't think that they have, or his other previous sides, which have it's happened to as well, had enough of a particular thing that, you know, when I bring up these players that I like who are not elite level, but people like Angel Correa and all these other ones who have this bit of, you call bastard at them and I call knack in them and that kind of thing. Mm. They never have this kind of player, really. They have a couple of snidey ones or whatever, but not always on the pitch. Certainly not that prominent in the side. I, I just... I feel for European football and what it is, what it has become, how the top sides play, how the top players expect to win. There is that's at least one element of it which isn't there for Man City's teams. 
I agree with that. I, I said before the tie, before the first leg, I said, don't write this Real Madrid team off. There's too much experience. There's too much experience of winning this competition. There's nous in the room of what it takes to win this competition. There are habits formed about what it takes to win this competition. And when you get to this stage of the competition, experience and mentality are every bit as much as important as the actual talent of the players. There's no doubt City are a better team than Real. They're objectively a better team than Real. But Real are habitual winners of the Champions League. Manchester City are habitual chokers in the Champions League. And Pep, since he lost the ability to manage Lionel Messi, has also been in that situation. Because I would put it to you that if we look at Pep's Champions League exits since leaving Lionel Messi, first year at Bayern, they lose to Real Madrid. Now, Real go on and win the competition, but I think that Bayern team was better than that Real team. That's the Bayern team that won the European Cup the year before and added a couple of good players. The next year they lose to Barcelona. It's that brilliant Barca with the Messi, Suarez, Neymar front three. No criticism there, though the manner of defeat was a bit embarrassing. Then they lose to Atletico Madrid. It's not exactly a vintage Atletico team. They were good, but not great. I think he should have won that one. And then you look at them with City. And you look at Monaco. You look at a Liverpool team that finished fourth. You look at a Spurs team that finished fourth. You look at Lyon, who were average in France. You look at losing the final last year to a Chelsea team that finished fourth. And the the three years they lost to those other English teams, that he won the league and were way clear of that team in fourth. They ran away with the league in two of the years. And in that 18-19 season, we pushed them. But Spurs scraped into the top four when their season collapsed in terms of league form. And last night, losing to a Real Madrid team, like it's not like he's been knocked out time and again by the best team in Europe. He's been knocked out in all bar one season by a team that objectively his team should have beaten because he had the better team. But yet, without Messi, he hasn't been able to do it. He's now a decade without Messi. He's been to one Champions League final. He's spent over a billion quid at City. He inherited a European champion uh, team at, at Bayern, and he's, do- he's not been able to win with them. Whereas on the flip side, Jurgen Klopp in that time has now been to four European Cup finals without Messi and without billions to spend. It's very hard for those that claim Pep is the better manager of the two to really make that claim now when Klopp continually outperforms him season upon season in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a piece out today on The Independent um, from Miguel, and it charts, among other things that he speaks about, some of the games that you've just referenced which are not just the defeats, but the manner of the defeats. Yeah. And it is this thing that uh, I was speaking about that, you know, they don't have this, uh, this whatever you want to call it, the mentality, the heritage, the expectation. That is all against them, against some of the opponents, but they themselves lack it. And he's, he's, he points out that there's eight, yeah, eight of the 11 defeats that they suffered in the knockout games. So not counting like the, the final against Chelsea, but actual knockout games when they've gone and lost it has been a collapse and it, it yeah. really, really is. And like last night, that this is something we've seen over and over again. I mean, that, that Bayern Munich one where 
Real Madrid just tore through them over and over again was like lunatic. It was completely ludicrous. And it's happened again and again. And Spurs the same, Leon the same, Real Madrid the same. Three goals in six minutes of play. Leon yeah. two and eight minutes, two and three minutes for Spurs, three and 19 minutes for Liverpool. And it goes on and on and on, eight of them. It's not, like I said, it's not that unexpected. It's not a club thing though, that's a him thing. No, it is, that's what I'm saying. It's it's the way that his teams are structured. Like you say, they are subjectively and objectively, by any standard you care to to rate or rank football teams, they are superb. They are an unbelievable team. Mm. But European football is not necessarily always the same so you construct your team in this way to remove any evidence of chaos in the game to remove any possibility of fortune playing a role over the course of an entire season fine but that's not what this european football is about it just isn't the the crowd make it more the expectation the history that has the the fact that it means so much more to be at this level of football than it does in a league cup fourth round against you know a local rival or whoever that's the point of it that's what mm. teams strive to get to this point for and that's what makes it more for the supporters and the players themselves and it takes a certain character to cope with that or to exploit that as well and i do think that that's something that is is lacking still in this team you know man city people talk about them being boring to watch and what they mean is that it's so so controlled really yeah you know you can find that boring that's that's fine if that's your opinion They're clinical but yes it is it's 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 clinical, it's concise, it is controlled, it removes any element of you know possibility of things going wrong. There's no passion, Carl. It's, it's a cold brand of football. It's a cold brand, and that's why they didn't miss the fans being in the stands. Because their football doesn't rely on any kind of emotion. It's, I would go even beyond that, though. It's not just that they didn't miss them, it was that that allowed them to exert even more influence, because there was nothing to counteract that side. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, I I was watching the game last night. Now, I think he made a massive error in bringing Grealish on. I think the move there was bring Aki on at left-back, push Zinchenko, who's an international quality midfielder, into midfield, and put Bernardo on the left wing. Because Bernardo on the left wing can give you everything you want from Grealish, but better. He's a better dribbler, he's got better ball retention, he's a more intelligent player. Grealish won two free kicks and missed two sitters. He also gave away two free kicks and lost the ball seven times. And I saw some people say, you know, if he if he brought on Aki, he would have been sl- slated for inviting pressure. But you're not inviting pressure. I think what you're doing, if you do Aki on, Zinchenko up a line, Bernardo up a line, is what you're doing is you're putting more control into the game. Grealish isn't a player that plays with control. He does not work properly in Pep's system yet. He may never work. He may not have the intelligence to take on board what he's being told. But last night, bringing on Grealish, who turned the ball over that frequently and missed those sitters, that invited pressure. That brought the pressure onto City. When you're two goals up, as they were, with 15 minutes left in a Champions League semi-final second leg, all you're looking to do is manage the game and see it out. And Pep didn't look to do that. He went for Grealish to go for the jugular. And the other aspect of it is, I often look at Pep when he's about to make a substitution and he's standing on the line with whoever's coming on and he's giving them instruction. And you can see their eyes widen up because of the sheer volume of detail he's giving them. And I just wonder, does he overcomplicate things for players? 
because when you hear what Rodrigo said, which was, well, Carlo just told me to go on and score. That's a simple, it sounds simple and ridiculous, but it's a very concise thing. This is your job. Go and do it. Pep is basically trying to walk Grealish or whoever's coming on through the next 15 minutes, every single action that they have, making it all automated. I think he overloads players with information, and I don't think he has, at City, I don't think he has a group of players with the collective game intelligence of those he had at Barcelona, because I think that Barcelona team might be the smartest team we've ever seen. Just in terms of, you know, so many of them were educated in the same way as Pep. So they saw the game the same way. They all came through that academy. They all learned the principles of Cruyff and Rennes Mickles. They, they knew what was expected of them. And it was easier for him to translate his message across. When they go behind and he's trying to give people information to change a game, it, it just gets lost somewhere. Now, there are intelligent players there, De Bruyne, Gundogan, etc., etc. But there's some of them I look at and think, that's straight in one ear and out the other. Whereas Carlo's message is, just go on and score. Don't worry about anything else. Just go and put the ball in the back of the net and we'll figure everything else out later. I, look, I think also that Barcelona team, the way that they played and the way that they were built, that was like a front runner in terms of style and everything as well. So one, they were ahead of other teams trying to do it. And two, they were ahead of other teams trying to counter it and combat it and stop it happening. They couldn't do that for quite a while. So that was a really big advantage for them as well. Whereas right now, people have been you know, learning and trying to play that similar sort of way or the next iteration of that way for quite a while now. And Man City aren't at the front of that or defending against that anymore. So it's... That is one difference for sure. And the other thing I will say is regarding like Grealish and substitutes and all the rest of it, even so, even so, even if Grealish gave the ball away 1,400 times in that 10 minutes on the pitch, they had two minutes and stoppage time to get through. It, yeah. it, it, it's on all of them. Like, all oh, it of is. Them. It's a collective mess. It absolutely Stopping is. Stop the cross didn't happen. When they conceded the first goal, they, they, they actually kicked off really quickly as well like that should have been like a minute maybe a minute and a half for some teams imagine Atletico Madrid concede that game that match wouldn't restart until 93 minutes are on the clock no and they kicked off pretty quickly there and then gave the ball away and obviously goal again straight away there was a real inability to to manage the game in the way that they wanted to and they they have they've still they've struggled to fall back on that when they are playing a team who is, you know, of their equivalent, let's, you know, like a Liverpool game. It's always going to be very, very close. It's always going to be, you know, one small difference makes the difference here or there for, for the outcome, for the result. But when it gets away from the way that they want to play the game, more often than not, uh, Manchester City don't win it. Whether they lose or not is obviously mm. down to the circumstances of each game. They weren't going to lose as such here because of. Uh, had to go to extra time first and all the rest of it first. But in a normal 90 minutes, which would have been the final or you know the semi-final against Liverpool or whatever, you look back at their games this season, the games which have gone against bigger clubs over the last even three years, I would say, they haven't won many of the games which get chaotic. Sometimes they draw, no. but they don't win a lot of them which get out of the way that they want to manage the game. And I think that that's a really big thing that Liverpool have uh, in that obviously we've managed to do 
the controlling thing and we've managed to do the wiping the floor with them thing we're playing really well but also when it gets to be a bit of a scrap sometimes obviously we fall short no team can just be a robot all the way through the year but we have that way to fall back on as well no question about that so the other thing the other thing i point out about his his barcelona team is a lot of them had already won the champions league before he took over there was a lot of that squad were part of the 06 squad and as well as that, they were managed by Rijkaard. Now, Rijkaard is not, I'm not suggesting for one second, he's anywhere close to Pep's level as a manager. But as a winner, as a personality who knows how to win, he might have had a big impact on a lot of those players in their formative years. I'm thinking Puyol, I'm thinking Xavi, I'm thinking Iniesta for a core. And obviously Messi came through under him and I, I think he some of the stuff he instilled really did help them when Pep came in and, and did his Pep things. The other thing about City and you've you've already mentioned it is the lack of bastards. And I said this on, on Raw the other night. When you're in a hole, when you're in a fight, you don't want eleven great players with you. You want a couple of bastards, a couple of lads who've been through some shit. And you look at our team and you look at the stories of Luis Diaz and what he overcame in his life and Fabinho and what he overcame and Mane and Salah and what these lads have overcome. I mean, poor Jordan Henderson had to live in Sunderland for a long portion of his life. None of the City players can relate to that. Man was living <laughs> the North Pole. Come on. So our lads, but our lads have been through stuff in their lives, Carl, that manifests itself into the type of players that they are. And there's a tough edge to our team. There's a hardened edge to Andy Robertson, who found himself rejected from a major academy and having to drop right the way down to the bottom of Scottish football, play as a part-timer, work in Marks and Spencers and work his way all the way back up. Whereas, not to pick him out because I think there's anything wrong with him, but Joao Canseo came through the Benfica academy, had everything laid on for him, never really had to worry you're going to get a very different type of personality. And in the game last night, when the game went against them, Zhao Canseo shrank and he was at fault for their first goal. Andy Robertson was at fault for the two goals Villarreal scored. And then in the second half, came out and showed what he's all about. Fabinho had a bad first half. Second half, came out and showed what he's all about. Naby the same. Another one that had a tough life. Mane the same. And then Diaz came on and you saw what he did. You heard his comments after the game. Diaz just you know, looks at who's in front of him and thinks, right, you're to blame for the shit I've been through. This is personal now. It, there is there is none of that in this City team, bar maybe Fernandinho, who doesn't play all the time. But a lot of the rest of them had quite easy paths to the top. Their talent, and obviously the hard work goes into it, of course, but it wasn't like they had to work their way up from the very bottom of Scottish football or travel four hours each way to go to a training session, uh, things like that. They haven't been through that. Some of these Real players, they have. They've been through some shit, and and they've learned how to win as well. I, I just think with Pep, Pep wants everything to be perfect. And in Pep's ideal world, every game is 3-0. Every little tactical nuance of what he wants comes off. And when things go against him, I don't necessarily know that Pep himself knows how to work around that. I think back even 
to the 94 Champions League final when things started to go against Barcelona. Heavy favourites in that game against an AC Milan team missing three starters in Baresi, Costa, Curta and Van Basten. You take the best striker in the world and the best centre-back pairing in the world out of any team and put them up against arguably the best team in the world. And what happens? More often than not, they lose. But when things went against that Barcelona team, you watch that final back, Pep Guardiola shrank. He was dreadful in that game. I don't know that he's ever had that mindset to fight back from behind. And I think when you look at the results across his career, when his teams go behind, when, like you said, teams create chaos, it's chalk and cheese. He's not the same guy. Kloppo goes behind. Kloppo knows what it's like to scrap for something. Kloppo loves the chaos. Kloppo lives in the chaos. And for the fight. Yeah. You can just imagine Klopp's house. There's Metallica or Pantera blaring nonstop or or whatever German equivalent he might like. Rammstein, maybe. There's punching bags set up all around the house. And he's just walking around leathering things. Whereas in Pep's house, everything is white. It's very clean. It's one of those modernistic homes, minimalistic furniture. You know, he's got a cleaner that comes in three times a day. Antibacterial wipes everywhere. Literally at every station. Every time you walk into a room, you've got the hand wash. Anytime you get up from having sat down, you're expected to wipe where you've sat. Everything is meticulous. Whereas with Klopp, there's just shit everywhere. And he fucking loves it. And he thrives in it. And if Pep went into Klopp's house, he'd probably have a heart attack. Do you reckon he has those little, um, you know, the blue little paper slip-ons that you put over your shoes when you come in through the front door? Oh, 100%. But not on, not over your shoes, over your socks. Your shoes you have to leave at the end of the driveway. Mm. Now, he assures you that the neighbours are very kind and considerate and they won't steal your shoes. But people's shoes have been stolen from that house. Here's another question for you. <clears throat> Is Kevin De Bruyne the best player in the world right now who hasn't won a Champions League? And is he the best player of the last 20 years who hasn't won a Champions League? Oof. So I was trying to think about this earlier. Now, I know there's a few a few options, but a lot of them are Belgians, like Eden Hazard, Vincent Kompany, uh, Toby Alderweireld. A lot of that Belgian golden generation haven't won anything. I, mean, I, mean, I, I haven't I'll, won a Champions League. You've got to throw Buffon in there as the obvious one, I guess. Yes, yes, Buffon. But it's difficult. I think it's more difficult for goalkeepers. Buffon is, is the greatest of all time, in my view, as a goalkeeper. And yeah, he will stand above those who haven't won a Champions League. But in terms of outfield players, it's hard to think of anyone I'm better than KDB. Zlatan, there we go. Oh, that's a shout. That's a shout. And funnily enough, the years Latan spent with Pep, they didn't win the Champions League. <laughs> no, and, and didn't get on. He's a bit too chaotic and he loves the fights as well. So Exactly. exactly. Um, I, I, I thought Kevin De Bruyne was relatively poor last night, to be perfectly honest. He had a, a, a yes. few decent moments, but I did not think he got hold of the game at all. I thought he was quite off it, to be honest. Um, he's an unbelievable player, obviously, but I do think that it's a little bit... Um, personified in what I was talking about before in that he kind of represents what they have lots and lots of really good players and I do think he's a quite a forceful personality in general 
matches in general play and all the rest of it, he's often the one who will get hold of things for them. But that seems to be more in games where they're already dominating and just can't find the breakthrough rather than games where they are under pressure or you know, really being taken the game toe to toe. And then he gets hold of it, that kind of thing. It does, it's, it's a little bit different and there's nothing wrong with it. Look, I'm not saying that, you know, De Bruyne is the reason they're going out or anything like that, but there's maybe a little bit too much in Man City squad of that side rather than the other kind that we're talking about here. And look, there's nothing wrong with the way that Guardiola builds a squad. And if the, if the, um, Champions League went according to plan in terms of the best teams go through and play the way that they're supposed to all the time, Man City would win it. The reason that they don't is because it doesn't quite conform to what we would see as normally week-to-week football, Premier League football, the normal results you expect and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think I think that's the, that's the purpose of it, really, isn't it? Because if, if it was just going to be... Actually, you mentioned Miguel Delaney earlier on. I saw him posed that question on Twitter the other day. When was the last time the objectively two best teams in in Europe met in the Champions League final? And there was a few examples. I think that 94 final was one that a lot of people gave. Uh, Some people suggested 99 with with Munich and Manchester United because the Juventus team had sort of fallen off a little bit by then. Um, there was some shouts, I believe, for Juve Milan in 03, some shouts for Chelsea United in 08, United Barca in 09. Uh, some people suggested United Barca in 2011. But it is a rarity. Like, it is a rarity that the two best teams in Europe meet in the European Cup final. Last year, nobody could argue that Chelsea were one of the two best. The year before, you could have made the claim for sure that it was Bayern and PSG. Um, but PSG getting in with no fans in the stands, very similar type of thing going on there to City. Um, the year before, obviously, was us and Spurs. The year before that, it was us and Real. Nobody could claim that us in 18 or Spurs in 19 were one of the two best teams in Europe. So you do often just get this, you know, this, this disconnect between what people think should happen and what actually happens. Um, I should point out as well, how how nice is it to see, Carl, that, you know, the big bad wolves, the, the money-rich oil state nations behind PSG, Chelsea uh, and Man City, all knocked off by humble little Real Madrid, who've only ever taken, I believe it's about 700 million euro from their own government, um, proving that, you know, if, you, if you're going to cozy up to a, to a government, do it with your own government, not with, a, with one that sells oil. Yes, absolutely right. It's got to remain a, a, the power of the people, which leads to unprecedented success year after year by um, you know making sure that nobody else can get quite as big as you in your own country because that's the way the deals are structured. Exactly. And that's what they'd like this, the, the situations to be in, in football as well. Here's another thought before we get into today's actual topic, which is Liverpool versus Tottenham. We know we're in the mix for a quadruple, okay? And we, we've all talked about it. We've all thought about it. We've also all thought about, you know, how much of a bonus would it be if not only do we win the quadruple, but Everton go down? But what if this is also the final season of Chelsea as an actual real contender? 
Because with Roman gone and the people being linked with them, like Todd Bowley and Clear Lake Capital, as the, the preferred bidder, there's going to be a massive change in approach there. And it may well be the type of approach that we've seen at Manchester United and at Arsenal, where winning isn't necessarily the goal. Champions League is the goal. Uh, commercial growth is the goal. Revenue is the goal. So in one season, if we could complete the quadruple, which admittedly still looks a little bit unlikely given the fact that City are ahead of us in the league, but if that happens and Everton go down and Chelsea are no longer to be considered what they have been for the past 19 years under Roman, that could just be the perfect year. Yeah, I mean, it would be an unbelievable year for Liverpool, but it'd be a bit and worried. And United are shit as well, so does well, that too. That's- Exactly what I was going to point out. I'd be a bit worried about 22-23 and where the decent games are going to come from. So we've got no rivals. We've got no big ones to play. Chelsea, if they're not a, you know, an angry rival, and Man United are not any kind of a rival because of incompetence, and Everton aren't a rival because they don't exist in the top flight anymore, what are we going to do? Play City twice a year and then just take the rest of the season off? <laughs> That's about the height of it. Sounds um, a bit too much like the Scottish Premiership to me, mate. But that, like, without being hyperbolic that kind of is where this is like it's leaning that way anyway it you look at it, it, it won't, won't because of because of the money behind united and because not even arsenal not even are building and whatever and then the league itself is quite competitive but but carl is the league actually good uh my big problem here is that good is a stupid way to describe anything in football usually because what we really True. need is consistent, isn't it? Like, um, yeah. I, I, I don't think that it'll work out like that just because football always presents a different opportunity to somebody else. What we might get is a year where, uh, let's say like Leicester, where there was like two or three teams restructuring while Leicester won the league and they were trying to build and they got it a little bit wrong and that kind of thing. And it, it made a couple of opportunities for people, take Leicester out of the equation, but it made opportunities for some of the other clubs to say, if we get it right this summer, if we get the right appointment in place, we can actually do bits, you know? Now, maybe that will happen below Liverpool and City. You know, maybe that will be like, we'll be miles ahead of them again, but then there'll be a lot of competitiveness between, let's say, third and sixth, seventh, eighth, depends on how much West Ham want to spend and Villa want to spend and Newcastle want to spend, all that kind of thing, you know? So it could be good in terms of um, interest and changeable positions and all that kind of thing below the top two mm. i don't think that there's anybody at the moment who are in a position to be in a position to quote uh, to challenge the top two at this point i think spurs are still the closest to that but only if they one make sure that conte stays and two do actually get in the champions league this year to make uh, a little bit more interesting for prospective signings yeah, more than maybe the, the Scottish Premiership, maybe it's heading towards, and maybe it already is, La Liga pre-Simeone type of time when it was just Real and Barca and everybody else was scrapping away and every so often someone would pop up and do well and then they'd drop off. Maybe that's what it's becoming because, you know, you look at 18, at, at 18 19, Liverpool and, and City ran away from the pack. You look at 1920, Liverpool ran away from the pack. Last season, Liverpool obviously had the injuries, but City ran away from the pack. And then this season, Liverpool and City again have run away from the pack. It, the, the gap between 
I think the gap between second and third, whether it's also them, second and third is every bit as big, if not bigger, than the gap between third and ninth. And that's more to do with what they are than what we are. No, sorry, the other way around. That's more to do with how good we are than anything to do with the rest of them. Yeah, maybe so. I, I mean, like, I don't think that, like I said, anyone's in a position to pretend that they're ready to challenge at this moment in time. So it is a matter for them of finding consistency and finding the right plan to follow to build. You know, United obviously now about to embark on yet another rebuild and hope that they're going to get it right this time. We have no evidence at this point that they even have a plan, let alone the right one. Um, it's still very piecemeal. It's still very using one bit of news to cover up a bad bit of news. It's still mm. very, very up in the air in terms of player contracts and who's going to come back and who's going to come in and all of that kind of stuff. So nobody is there ready to start building towards what we already are. So, you know, short of another ridiculous transfer crisis, uh, sorry, injury crisis, or, I don't know, manager walking out halfway through the season unexpectedly or anything like that, it's going to be Liverpool City top two again. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, is there is there any small possibility that if City have a hangover from what happened in midweek, they're going to have tired legs, is there a possibility that, you know, an emotional, psychological hangover, they drop points to Newcastle, they lose the league title to us, given how the Champions League went? Do you think, is there any small possibility that Pep just says, I can't do this anymore? I'm going to take a year off, and then after the World Cup, I'm going to take my international job, I'm going to go manage Brazil, or I'm going to go manage whoever, maybe Spain opens up. Do you think, it could that be in his mind? Not really. I don't think so. Unless there's like you know discussions that don't go his way over summer on recruitment or anything like that. Um, maybe if there are any, I don't know, additional issues in the squad that we don't really know about yet, anything like that. Because there's obviously quite a few off-field things have happened at Man City over the last uh, two years, let's say. And mm. I, by that I mean individual players plus the club itself. You know, coming under scrutiny for FFP and all the rest of it. So. If there's anything like that that we don't really know about yet, maybe that's a possibility, but I don't expect so because that is a club which has been built to give him specifically as much support as he needs. You know, in the very similar way that Klopp has been able to expand the backroom staff, Guardiola has been into being able to bring in who he wants. He lost to Mikel Arteta and was able to obviously replace him with whoever he wanted, really. So I don't think that that's going to be the case. There's a really good setup at City, like world class in terms of off pitch stuff. Um, so unless there are behind the scenes disgruntlements, nah, doubt it. Shame, shame. Uh, he is at a contract next summer, so there's been some rumours that he's looking to extend. But at the same time, this is a, an unusually long time for Pep to stay in a role, given you know he stayed three years at Bayern. I think it was he four years at Barcelona, and has talked about you know the exhaustion of it. Uh, unless he just loves the, the the rivalry with Klopp, unless he finds that it drives him, maybe I think I think Pep is part of why Klopp stayed as well, because I think he really enjoys that level of competition between the two. Um, and there's obviously there's incredible respect there between, like when Ferguson and Wenger were the top two in the league, you could tell that there was great respect there, but they really didn't like each other. These two love each other, like. 
even though like one's house is is a museum and the other one's house is a, you know like a, a rock concert, I'd imagine the two of them could spend hours on the phone just talking about minor details of the game, like the small intricacies of things. Because I don't think Klopp gets nearly enough credit for the tactician that he is. Because, you know, he says things like, oh, heavy metal football. And people people still think that we play the way we did mm. under Klopp in 16, 17, 17, 18. There's still that small amount of people out there that think, well, that's what Liverpool do. They're just, you know, gung-ho, chaos everywhere, you know, flat out going forward, scoring six goals a game, but conceding three. Well, Dave, we do play with this dangerous high line. So, yeah, I wanted to highlight the high line. So, it worked <laughs> out yesterday. Liverpool have played 57 games this season and lost three of them. City have played 54, including the Community Shield, and lost nine of them. City's best defence in the world, quote-unquote, have conceded 43 game- goals in their 54 games. No, sorry, 44 goals in their 54 games. Our reckless high line has conceded 43 goals in our 57 games. So less goals in more games, despite the quote-unquote reckless nature of how we play. I think some people need to give their heads a bit of a wobble, Carl. I think some people need to watch more than the game they're being paid to watch that particular weekend, Dave. (laughs) Like, I don't know, like, you could could download, I, I, I don't know, SofaScore or something onto their phones for them. And at least give them some sort of, you know, statistical analysis. You could, you could get them, a, you know, some sort of stats bomb pack that they could really dig into, or you could have someone from stats bomb. You've got the money, Sky, it's, BT. You've got the money. Get, it's given to them every game, every game, every week. But but is it given to them, or is it actually it's, explained to them? It's given to them, and they do nothing with it the vast yeah. majority of the time. I would say, That's same the as you can quite easily tell that you get people doing. During the season, Champions League, they're punditing in the studio or CoCom's uh, Champions League group stage match or something like that. And they'll make a comment like, oh, I think this player is probably the best number nine in the world today. And then later on in the same game, they will comment and say, do you know what? I've only seen Real Madrid a couple of times this season, but this is the best I've seen them play. What are you comparing them to to make them the best number nine in the world then? And this happens over and over again, multiple channels, multiple pundits, and it's why as soon as the halftime whistle goes, my television goes on mute. Yeah, it's it's the only way. It really is the only way because there are just so many bad pundits. And I want to take a moment to give credit here to someone that I, I've been very critical of in the past. I think Jamie Carragher has taken his analysis on Monday Night Football up multiple levels this year because he's investing more time in the statistical side of things. And he gave mention to John Harrison recently, who does the the great uh, goalkeeping analysis on social media. And I think since Carragher took that kind of approach, which is the approach that Neville has admitted he took in his early days, which gave him a leg up in a lot of the competition, I just think the standard of of Carragher's uh, punditry uh, more his analysis than his game punditry. I think when he's talking about a game as he's watching it, I think he's still a little bit, a little bit weak. He's. I don't think he's a good commentator. I think in the studio he can be a little bit weak in his analysis in the moment, but when he's looking at things objectively after the fact and then talking about them two or three days later, 
I really do think he's become very, very good at that. Similar to Neville. I think Neville's probably a little bit better on commentary, about the same in the studio for a game, but really strong after the fact. I think Carragher's done really well this year. Whereas, you know, I mean, Micka Richards seems like he'd be the best lad to hang around with. But by God, is his analysis poor. Well, I mean, it's obviously a, a pretty difficult thing to do at Spur at the moment when you're doing the co-coms to, to pick out everything that's going on in the game off the ball, which I think is, is probably where I find the, the most use when commentators give insight, um, you know, because everyone's watching the play, obviously, if you're watching on telly, but when they start talking about the movement off the ball earlier in the move or why a defender's been dragged out of position, that's where I think it's of most use. Well, um, I had so Rob I Green that. last night on CBS... Oh, you're a very and, fortunate man. Oh, no, I was not at all. <laughs> so, so City, uh, Real pushed their two fullbacks on at one point. Uh, Carvial went probably 15 yards advanced of the defensive line on one side, and Mendy went about the same on the other side. And Casemiro, as all proper defensive midfielders do, just dropped five yards out of the midfield and was probably 10 yards in front of the centre backs. And Rob Green says, Oh, they've gone three at the back now. And there's just dead silence because uh, I think it's Peter Drury someone just says nothing. And then the fullbacks drop back. They're back into a back four, Peter. I'm like, <laughs> just what are you talking about? Why is he on the broadcast? But the thing is, when you're doing it in the moment, like we'll all see Clive Tilsley and Drury and all the different commentators. They always pull up their sheets of the prep that they've done. Yeah. The co-commentator shouldn't be allowed in the booth if he hasn't got similar amounts of notes. Like, give us... Give us some sort of analysis on something. If if a team makes a change in game, the guy in the booth with the commentator need. I want him to tell me how often have they gone to that shape this year? Mm. How often has that player who might normally play on the right wing but is now coming on the left wing? How often has he played there? That's the type of information I want. That's not hard to find. You can go on transfer market and find some of that information. You can go on who scored. It's easy to find, let alone the access to the stats and the staff that them boys have. That's stuff you could do on your phone in the five minutes before the game. I want value. I, when a substitution's coming on, I want to hear why they're coming on. Tell me why they're coming on. Tell me, have they done this substitution before and did it work? What game was it? What was the game state at that time? Is it the same game state as this one? Like, for example, when Diaz came on against. Uh, Villarreal, in my head I'm thinking, well, Klopp brought him on against Everton and he helped change the game by whittling the field and being the outball for us. And yet there's nobody in the commentary saying anything at at all about the Everton game. They never mentioned it once how Diaz came on and was such a difference maker in that game for us. Like, you guys are getting paid a fortune for this. Yeah, I think it's been a, a long-running thing with maybe some people who have been in that job for a long time and football and what football fans want has moved on quite considerably compared to you know, 10, 12 years ago, to be perfectly honest. It used to be, and I don't know if that's because of social media or just because I'm more aware of what other people look for now, it used to seemingly be quite accepted that a colour commentator would just literally describe what has happened to you. And now I regularly see people want an awful lot more than that. And uh, I don't want to. I don't want to put too much of the blame here at, at former players and stuff who have just gone into broadcasting now, 
I mean, while I do think that they should um, already be able to do the job before they get a job, otherwise other people could do it, I also understand completely that it takes a little bit of time to get used to talking about it in terms to explain to other people rather than what you already know in your head. It's not necessarily always what you can explain out loud. So maybe that takes a bit of getting used to. But some of the time you've got people on some of these channels who have been there for three, four, five, six seasons, and they don't do anything different, and they've no. never been any good, and it's just not nice to listen to at all. I said the other night to you guys, didn't Jim Beglin used to be good? And I realised it's not that he used to be good, it's that the standard used to be really bad or what we expected was really low. But here's the thing. When players retire and want to stay in the game, they go one of two ways. They either go into punditry or they go into coaching. Now, to go into coaching, they have to pass a lot of stages of training to become coaches. They have to do all their badges. They have to do a certain amount of hours on the training ground. They have to do work in a classroom. And yet any old fool who played the game can rock up and become a pundit. Like, wouldn't it be better if Sky and BT and all the rest, or or just some sort of independent body, put together some sort of program that they go in and actually learn what they're meant to be doing, learn how to analyse information, Learn how to make notes before a game so you're not just rabbit. Rob Green turned around last night. In You remember after City scored and City were sort of knocking the ball around and Real were chasing them and City looked quite dangerous and looked like they might actually run the score up a little bit. Rob Green turns around and goes, I've been in this situation where you're just chasing the ball and you can't get it. You were a goalkeeper. You never chased the ball in your life. What are you talking about do you think we don't know who you are? I mean, he um, chased the ball once, I seem to remember, when it rolled under his foot at the World Cup. <laughs> oh, Lord. But, like, you know, and you've got a talk sport of just the worst. They they just employ absolute balance. M- Michael Gray, who... No, 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 we're not going left this. Back. He's Tottenham. not a Sunderland prick. No, 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 Tottenham. I'm saying it, I'm saying it. Alison Becker is the worst ball-playing goalkeeper he's ever seen. Someone take him off the air. Someone send him far away. And take Jason Cundy, which at the same time. Right, Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, Carl, Tottenham Hotspur are one of the weirder teams in the league. They're not quite Southampton levels of weird, where you you can beat Arsenal one week and then lose 6-0 at home to Chelsea the next. But Tottenham are very, very weird. And under Antonio Conte, they have remained just as weird as they were under Nuno, but perhaps a slightly better version of themselves. So, is that a Clive Tilsley? Is that Clive Tilsley from the Champions League final? Is that yours? Sure is. That is class. So, for those that are in the Discord at the minute, <laughs> Carl's posted a picture of Clive Tilsley's pre-match handwritten notes about all the players, all the subs, about the managers, and then a bunch of other notes at the bottom. Like This is the type of prep that we need. And commentators do it all the time. And they're on all the time. They're talking nonstop. Co-commentators are just there to add value. It would be so easy for them to have pre-prepared notes like this, even if they just hired themselves an assistant who could prepare the stuff and hand it to them, like pay them the living wage and just, you know, make yourself seem better. You'll get better work if you do it as well. Take the time. Carragher's doing it. 
Carragher's a very busy man. He's got businesses to run. He's got everything. And he's doing it. So you can do it as well, Rob Green and Jim Pegman and whoever else. Um, anyway, back to Tottenham. Under Antonio Conte, they've just been strange. Like they lost to Chelsea, lost to Southampton, lost to Wolves, the last two of them at home. And then went and beat City at City and then lost at Burnley. And then they lost to a bad Man United team. And then when Arsenal, because Arsenal are Arsenal, lost three games in a row to Crystal Palace, Brighton and Southampton, three mid-table teams, and gifted top four to Spurs. Well, Spurs went and lost to Brighton and drew drew uh, with Brentford and just gifted it back to them. I genuinely don't know what to make of this group. I think what we've seen is kind of normal, to be honest. I mean, it's a team which is getting better under a really, really good coach and he's getting them the way that they want or the way that he wants them to be playing. But what they're not yet is a team with many of the the qualities that we were just talking about with Man City, to be honest. They're not that winning mentality yet. He's got a bunch of players who are trying to do what he wants them to do without having that uh, mental capability or without having the experience of knowing how to do it and to be perfectly honest in some cases not quite having that quality that he's used to expecting of people um all of that i think is okay all of that is quite normal team building the two issues with it are one that antonio conte is really impatient he he wants them to be there already and he needs that club to be able to give him the players to be there already because he's not going to hang around and do you know what uh, Gerard Hulia did with Liverpool or what Brendan Rodgers did with Liverpool and try to get a team from Europa League, UEFA Cup sort of standard into Champions League sort of standard. He wants them to go from Champions League standard already to challenge them for the title. That's what he wants. So that's the first issue with Spurs. The second issue is obviously the fact that it's a really, really tight fight for fourth this year and the team that they're fighting head-to-head with right now is their local rivals. You know, if it was Man United it probably wouldn't be seen as as bad. You know, if it's a Man United side who are already uh, in a position to go on and try and challenge for titles and all the rest of it, it'd probably be seen as okay. You know, half a half a season or whatever for Conte, he's almost got them there. So you can imagine how good it'll be next season. But he's not. He's up against a side who have been one of the biggest shambles in English football for about the last five years, maybe more. They are finally starting to put it together themselves in terms of a bit more consistency and all that. But you still look at those two teams who are going for fourth. One of them is going to get in with at least 11 league defeats this season. And they're going to be among the four best. I mean, mm. that's really, really poor. No, not, not too many draws for either of them, which is why they've got more defeats than Man United because United are just chaotic and rubbish and have drawn 10 matches this season. But... I, I think that there's a, a, a reasonable upward trajectory there for Spurs in terms of performance levels and results. And when they get it right, they can look really, really good. But I don't expect them to get it right all the time at the minute because of where they are in that team building process, basically. You know, they're still not that far along from when Conte came in. He's, I mean, when he came in, they were what? Maybe looked like they could be in the running for fifth or sixth, maybe. Probably not any higher than that because United at the time was still. Not good, but okay. They looked like they would still have enough individual quality to get top four and all the rest of it. So I think he's like more or less on track or a little bit doing well, but the timing isn't great. And like I said, Conte is not the most patient of humans. He's not. And it's a shame because if he were to look big picture and if the club could satisfy him that they had a long-term vision with him, 
Like, he took over a Spurs team in better shape than the Liverpool that Klopp took over, in that he inherited two world-class forwards in Kane and Son and a world-class centre-back in uh, Romero. The issue that they have is that with Kane and Son's age, they can't really afford three, four years of, of build to, you know, major success. But maybe the answer would be to do with Kane what Liverpool did with Coutinho and try and turn him into multiple top-class players. I think Son's game will will age quite well. Kane's should age well, but the problem with him is obviously he's had a number of injuries. Now, if he can avoid those, then maybe he can play at the highest level, like, and I mean the elite level for the three, four, five years. If that's the case, Spurs can build something there. They added Kulisevsky. I think that completes their front three, and I think it's potentially one of the better front threes in Europe. They brought in Bentoncourt. He helps the midfield, but they still need another one in there with him, a right wing back. I do like Regulon. They need two centre-backs and a goalkeeper. Like There's a lot to, to do there, and with Conte, he'll want to challenge for the title next year. Like If they finish fifth this year... He'll still think, right, we're going to win the title next year because that's what I do. He wouldn't be of the mindset of, well, let's aim for third next year. And then the following year, we'll try and win the title. And that way we can build this thing slowly and we're not going to have to try and rush everything together. We can be a bit more particular about the targets that we, that we buy them. So, that we buy. So, it, it's a shame. It, it, if he was willing to just take a step back and, and look at the bigger picture, I really think there's something there that Conte could do with that club. I'm not necessarily saying he will win a title or with them, but he could certainly win a couple of cups. He could certainly have success there. And if he wins cups with them, they'll build a statue of him, let alone win in the league. Yeah, I think there's loads of reason to suspect if he just stays for next season alone, you can get either third or fourth and a cup, or at least go deep into a cup and try to win it, with probably only like two or three signings. And he'll probably demand like, you know, six in the summer anyway, or Spurs will try and get him six or seven and end up getting three or four. I think that that's okay. You know, the squad's not a million miles away. Ten Hag's not going to make United unbelievably good and unbeatable straight away. Arsenal, they're improving and they've got a load of decent players, but the squad depth is not good. And they've got to get their striker signings this season or this summer mm. absolutely spot on. Like if you only do okay, that's going to make them potentially worse than they are right now. Especially I mean, if they spend know. big money on someone and he's just okay. Yeah, I mean... Because they, because they need so much though, Carl. Like I yeah. think they Arsenal realistically need a striker, a backup striker, a starting midfielder to replace Xhaka, a depth midfielder to replace El Nenny, who's, on a, who's out of contract. They need a backup right back because Cedric is finished. They might need a backup left back because Tavares is mental. And they need a couple of backup centre backs because it looks like Saliba's not coming back this summer. They're selling Mavroponos. They're sell- selling Mari. And the only the centre back they've got after the starting two is Rob Holding, who, with respect, is a slightly better than Nat Phillips. Like he's your fifth centre back if you're going to be a serious team. That's an awful... And the backup keeper is needed as well because Leno's off. Now, I know they've got the American lined up, but they have to pay for him. That's an awful lot to try and do in one summer, especially if you want to go big game hunting at the top of the table, uh, at the top of the pitch, rather, and you want to get a top striker in 
Because even a Dominic Calvert-Lewin is going to set you back 60 million. And he's not a top-class striker. No, Arsenal, I think, need to go in a quite a different direction, like I've said before. But whatever about them. I think the point for Spurs is that they've got a real opportunity to be Champions League side and competing for at least a domestic trophy, like I say. And, And if they do only get into the Europa League, if they do only finish fifth this year, I think they've got a good chance of winning that next year. You know, if they get one or two signings and that's your route into the Champions League as well as a trophy. So I hope he does stay around for another year. And unless Paratici gets it horribly, horribly wrong this summer, I don't see that he shouldn't do, but that is a possibility. He's he's capable of getting it horribly wrong. He got it horribly wrong. You've had this multiple times. (laughs) And, you know, his his early signings at, at Spurs didn't exactly work out either. So, like you're right though, because even if even if Spurs finish fifth this year and Arsenal finish fourth, I, I would still say Spurs are a better team than Arsenal. I just think Arsenal had the rub of the green a bit more, and they didn't have Harry Kane on strike for half of the year. Like Harry Kane, remember, was dreadful for the first half of this season. If he'd turned up, you know, when they were losing to Palace and Chelsea and Arsenal and West Ham and United in the first half of the season and they'd won one of those games and drawn a couple of them and lost, say, two, rather than losing all five, if he turned up for Everton away or Southampton away, they wouldn't be in this situation. They would be clear. They could even be third because Chelsea aren't great. So they'll look at it and say, well, they should look at it and say, Arsenal are no better than us. Not really sure Chelsea are all that much better than us either. United are not going to be particularly good next year under Ten Hag, no matter what he does, because there's so much just shit to scrape away there that, you know, this is a real opportunity for us to not just get into the top four, but reestablish ourselves in the top four and then take the, the next steps to go and challenge the other two. I, I, I think Spurs are, are fairly well set up if, if he's willing to stay, which I think he will, I, I don't believe the stories that he offered his services to Paris Saint Germain or anything that I do think there's, I do think there's loyalty in him. I, I think he, I think he's the type of manager. If he was out of work, I'm sure he would have been ringing PSG and saying, "Look, this is my price. I'm available." But when he's in a job, I don't for one second believe that he has his agent shopping him around. I don't for one second believe that. Sorry, I just missed the end of who you were talking about there. I was just saying with Conte, you know, there's been stories about how he's allegedly offered his services to PSG. Mm. And I don't believe that because I think he's quite a loyal man. I'm sure if he was out of work, he'd be ringing them and saying, look, this is the price I'm I'm available. But I don't for, for a second believe that he's going behind Spurs back and shopping himself around Europe. Yeah, I also think that he's probably a manager who uh, thinks he's already staked his claim in European football basically for what he's worth and how good he is. I don't think he'd even need to be going to call people and say I'm available. I think if they want him, they'll come to him and that's probably the stance he would take to begin with. Yeah, yeah, I do agree. Um, So they come in to this game in mixed form, last three games, lost to Brighton, really, really disappointing, flat performance. Drew away with Brentford, really flat, really disappointing. Lucky to get a draw in that because Ivan Tony hit the woodwork twice. And then they beat Leicester 3 1 uh, last weekend. Leicester heavily rotated ahead of the second leg of their Europa Conference League semi final. 
So I don't really know what to take from those three games. But before that, they did win four in a row. They they beat Brighton comfortably. They beat West Ham comfortably. And they walloped both Newcastle and Aston Villa, showing what they're capable of when it all clicks for them. What Spurs are you expecting this weekend? I fear it may be the good one, to be honest. Um, they seem to play quite well nearly every time they come to Anfield. They seem to bring their best attacking traits. They seem to create us, sorry, cause us quite a lot of problems with, especially uh, Son's runs in behind and Kane's penalty box prowess seems to come to the fore when he plays against us as well, uh, in different ways, not just the finishing. But uh, I do think that they're still quite... Dodgy is not really the word that I want to use. Uh, They're not great defensively all the time, but I don't think it's about individual errors so much as I just think that the quality is not quite there, especially on that left side of the pitch. They're not going to have Reylon, obviously, like you say. Sessegnon, I think he's a good player still. He's still got a lot of promise and development, but defensively, he definitely still has his weaknesses. Ben Davies is solid, but not great. And even on that side of midfield, I think Hoiberg's a really good midfielder, but he doesn't he doesn't cover the ground that quickly when you've got runners off the back of him. So I think that there's plenty of room to exploit them, um, sort of on the counter counter attack side, and even in build up play as well if we are able to dominate. But I don't think it'll be a very easy game at all. No, I don't think it'll be easy. I, I definitely don't think it'll be easy. I think they're 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 too good to just overlook them. And they're clearly the the best team we have left uh, in the Premier League this season. Um, Now, they play, obviously, the back three. And the three games we've lost this season, two of them were against teams playing a back three in Brentford. No, not in Brentford, sorry. Did Leicester? No, maybe I'm wrong. Did Leicester play a back three when we played them? I can't remember. I know they had loads of injuries. Anyway, the last game we lost was to Inter Milan, who... Conte's fingerprints are still all over that team. And he does tend to do fairly well against the top managers. But I still feel like if we, you know, if we're at our best or close to our best, that should still be enough. I I think there's going to be a buoyant mood around the squad because of what happened Tuesday and how we fought back and won the game, qualified for the Champions League. I think last night will have given our lads a big boost as well because I think they wanted Real Madrid and Salah has come out and said, this is what I want. This is who I want. We're we're going for revenge here. Hmm. So I do think there could be a bit of a bump among our players heading into this game, which might just see us start really fast in a way that Spurs struggle to cope with. I hope so, and and the fans as well, to be perfectly honest. I think City going out the way that they did and not having to face Man City, regardless of whether you think we'd beat them or not, just by the fact you're not playing another Premier League team again. Mm. Playing Real Madrid, the whole Kiev thing, the opportunity for the same thing as Salah said, I think the supporters will get a bit of a boost from that as well. And the fact that it's a nighttime kickoff, not a you know 12.30 like it was last Saturday and all the rest of it. Yeah, I, I think there's a good chance we see Liverpool start this one a lot faster. There's a good few days recovery in between as well, with us having played Tuesday night, obviously. So I, I am hopeful that although it'll be difficult overall, that we do make a really good start. So 
Tanganga's been out for months. He, he's out for the season. Doherty's done for the season by the looks of things. Uh, Regulon looks like he might be done for the season. And Ollie Skip is done for the season. So Regulon would be a starter. And I think Skip has done quite well under Conte when he's played. Doherty had actually been really important to them when he broke into the team and was playing a bit of right wing back and a bit of left wing back. Mm. And he scored a couple of key goals. So, you know, they've got some some important players or players that have been important to them out. Whereas for us, the news is that Bobby Firmino is back in training today and is an option for the weekend. So we may well have a clean bill of health heading into our last six games, which is massive. Absolutely massive. I don't want you talking up. You know what happened last time. Oh, I know. I know. But look, look, we're... Nah, it's huge. It, no, you're right. It's huge. and All of our depth is the there options. as well, though. That's That's the big yeah. thing. Yeah, it's not just having the options to choose who starts. It is having the game changers for both directions. You know, on the bench, you can have a more defensive outlook if you need it to. You can change shape if you need it to. You can take a different form of attack if you need to, like when we brought on Origi, for example, or whatever. It's about having that possibility for the in-game changes. And you mentioned earlier on about Klopp maybe not getting the credit he deserves for for tactical decision-making. I think over the last few months, his subs have been almost perfect, like, Game after game after game, he has made some really, really good changes a little bit earlier as well than we had seen previously. I think that's been a big thing. And you know, having Firmino back is obviously a, a big thing anyway. He's very popular in the squad and all the rest of it. So all positive. There's there's no single element of where Liverpool are right now that you can say, oh, this is the downer. It just, there just isn't at the moment. No, there's not at all. There, there's not at all. Everything about it is very, very positive. So, from them, I'd expect that they'll line up with Lloris in goal, Romero, Dyer, and Davies as a back three, Emerson Royale, and probably Sessignon as the wing backs, Hoysberg and Bentoncourt in central midfield, and Kuliseski, Kane, and Son up front. Would you expect anything outside of that? Not at all. I think Lucas Moore is maybe the only one you look at that he could come in and be a, a starter, but I think he's mm. only a starter if Kulsevsky's not fully fit, to be honest. So their 11 at the minute picks, picks itself. Yeah, and you know it's a good 11. There's, there's definitely yeah, holes yeah. in it. There's holes in it. Dyer and Davies are not two players you'd really want in your team, and Tessnion is still a little bit suspect defensively, so maybe we can attack them there on that side. Uh, for us then, Ali... We'll start. I think yeah. we'll probably see Trent, Matip, Virgil, maybe Costas in this one. Although Robbo did come off early against Villarreal, I wonder if Costas might start this one. Yeah, and I, I've got this one down as Robbo starting with a potential Costas in midweek for the Tuesday night match. Yeah, against Villa. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, midfield then, I think Henderson starts. I think Thiago starts. Is the third one Fabinho or is Henderson the six with Curtis Jones as an eight? Oh, um, I was assuming Henderson as the eight and Fabinho six, but um, I'm getting the sense you, you want Henderson to start and Fabinho rested. Well, I'm just thinking like the games where Henderson does well are games in which the opposition don't attack 
with runners through the middle of the pitch. And while Bentoncourt and Heusberg are both good players, they're not exactly big-time ball carriers through the middle of that, that pitch. And I just wonder if maybe Klopp will look at it and think, maybe this is one that we can have Fabinho off the bench on 60. Now, I, I imagine he'll go Henderson, Fabinho and Thiago as the three. But is there the possibility that Fabinho sits out as well? Because he's played quite a bit. I know he sat the Newcastle game out, so maybe maybe he gets this one out as well. Or maybe he plays this one. Yeah, again, I would expect there to be one change in this line between Saturday and Tuesday. So I don't know whether that would be just Cater coming back in if Henderson starts this one, for example. I mean, we just spoke about their their left side as well, Davies, Sessegnon, and even Hoiberg, that, that kind of triangle there. If that's one that we want to exploit, who do we want to be the conduit almost? Not not to regularly get the ball, but basically to feed the ball to Trent, to Salah, to let them have that kind of angle. I mean, I don't really have a problem with this Curtis Jones at all because he's very good at that. But maybe yeah. Henderson's runs into the box at times that we've seen is also another thing that we might want to think about there. Yeah, especially considering Ben Davies has a habit of going with runners when he doesn't need to go with them. And most of those runs that Henderson makes on the outside are decoy runs. And if Davies bites on a couple of them, it could leave big space for Salah. But as well as that, like you said, if he's running off the back of their midfield into the box and their other two midfielders are matched up man-to-man with Fabinho and Thiago, say, it leaves it on Eric Dyer to step out and meet Henderson, and Dyer's not really comfortable when he's asked to step out of that defensive line and pick up a runner coming from midfield. So, yeah, Henderson on the right, Fabinho and Thiago, and I think in midweek against Villa, it might be Henderson, Fabinho and Naby as the three. Yeah. In the front three, then, I'm expecting Salah to start. I'm expecting Mane to start and I'm expecting Diaz to start. I'm on board with that. I think that's our best front three as well. I think it gives us gives us the best balance. And then we've got Jota to come off the bench. We could have Bobby to come off the bench. And if we need a body in midfield at any point, we'll have Naby there as well. So, you know, we, we'd have Joe Gomez as an option or Costa as an, as an option if we wanted to make a change at fullback. I think we're strong going into this game. Everybody fit. A team full of confidence. Six games left in the season. Win all six, and we end this season with at least at least three trophies, Carol. That's the thing. We've got six games. If we win them all, we'll have three trophies and potentially a fourth. If we lose four of them and win two of them, we could still have three trophies. <laughs> but we'd rather, <laughs> yeah. we'd rather win all six. We'd rather win all six. Yeah, that's all we've got to do, isn't it? Win our games. Can't do anything else about the rest of it. So just see what happens. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's worth worrying about the league now. We'll see how City react. It probably would have been a better thing for Liverpool if they'd have had a Saturday game or even that Saturday twelve o'clock twelve thirty game. That would have been mm. ideal moment for it to fall for theirs. But yeah, whatever, whatever they do, you can't worry about it. We've already had our games against them. So just win ours. Keep the victories going. Keep the uh, positivity and the, the morale and everything and the expectation. That's all you can do at this point. Exactly. We win, we're top of the league and they have to respond. And if they fail to respond and Newcastle take anything away from the Etihad, which, let's remember, Palace have gone there and won 
an out-of-form Spurs went there and won. Southampton went there and got a draw. They're not infallible at home. They have lost nine times this season. They're not unbeatable. Maybe, just maybe, Newcastle can go and get there. And if they do, then the early edition of Scouted next week will focus on Avita Zane Pet, uh, Biker Grove, Geordie Shore, the likely lads, Vera, what happened to the likely lads, uh, and all other things Newcastle. Carol will do the entire show in a Geordie accent. And it'll just be great crack. So that's basically what we're looking for, isn't it? All of the above. I'm fine with that. <laughs> right. Maybe, 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 not, maybe not the accent one. We want people to keep listening, you see. So Yeah, it is true. It is true. Um, but there'll be an ode to Gaza and, and whoever else. Brian Robson, Steve Bruce, and, and all Carl of the Cor- Newcastle heroes. Carl Corn to Lake. Everybody. Sammy Amiobi. <laughs> Right, what is your prediction for Liverpool versus Tottenham? 3-1. I think we'll go ahead early on. I think there'll be an early goal. I'm not sure which way, but whichever way, let's say we we go ahead, I think they peg us back and then we we get a a period in the match second half where we'll score twice in quick succession. I'm going to be a little bit more cautious. I'm going to say a 2-1 win. A 2-1 win. I think we might might go ahead, they'll come back, and and then we'll snatch a winner and we'll feel inevitable. That's the hope, anyway. That's that's Dave, the hope. We want, we want to come out of this one feeling inevitable. People need to be able to get to Paris and the Champions League final with their heart muscles intact, all right? No no early stuff like this, okay? There's no, a lot, we there's, we've got, we've got two finals to go yet, mate. I know. I know we do. And we need to treat every game like a, fi- like a final and show that we can win those big games. So we do it now on Saturday against Spurs. Then we do it against Villa. Then it's the cup final against Chelsea and hopefully the Chelsea that we've seen in recent weeks is the Chelsea that turns up. Then it's Southampton in the league. Then it's Wolves in the league. And then it's Paris and it's Madrid. And my final question to before you go, Carl. Madrid have needed two legs, really, in both of these, in the, in the last three ties. They've really needed comebacks in the second leg all three times. They were two goals down to... Paris Saint-Germain, they were on their way out, they came back, they were a goal down to Chelsea after Chelsea scored three at the Bernabeu they had the big comeback they were two goals down to City last night I said to you many years ago I would rather play Madrid in a one-off game than a two-legged affair, no sorry, I'd rather play them over two legs than one leg because they felt more inevitable at the time with Cristiano and all that all that going on. In a one-legged tie, I, I thought they were near impossible to beat. Now I feel like in a one, one-off game, they're quite a bit weaker, and maybe the two legs suits them a bit more. Early thought before the, the final. Am I a bit mad to think that? No, in principle not. I think there's been a lot of games, even against run-of-the-mill La Liga sides this year, where they have looked quite ordinary, to be fair, and it has taken individuals or spells of matches again for them to get the wins and the points, and also a lot of inconsistency from their rivals for the title quite early on. So I don't think that that's a, a woeful perspective to have. I also think it's worth noting the other side of the equation that Liverpool in one-off matches are pretty exceptional. Yes, they are. 
And Real Madrid have lost eight times this season, including four times in this Champions League uh, run of theirs. Whereas, like I said earlier, we've only lost three times, only once in the Champions League, and it was a game we could afford to lose. They have looked... They're, they're just not as good as they were. We're going to talk about it more in the coming weeks, but they're not as good as they were, and we're better than we were in 2018. So, you know, lots to think about, lots to look forward to. We will see you next time. Enjoy your weekends. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go... We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.